Good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see you here today. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our pastors. If you're new here, new for the first time, first time in a long time, we're so glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you make yourself at home here at this stuff. Uh, before we, we jump in proper, I did, of course, want to take a moment to acknowledge and celebrate all the moms in the room today. Happy Mother's Day, moms. We'll give you a hand. Yeah. I am, I am not a mother, but I have a mother, a very wonderful mother, and I'm married to a mother, and so I know that there is more, no calling in life that is more sacred than the call to motherhood. And so moms, please know that we know that we put you through a lot, and we're so incredibly grateful for you, and your church family is grateful for you this morning. So today we are in the second week of our series called Good News for Anxious Christians. And if you missed the first week, I'll restate the basic premise for you. First off, ours is a very anxious age. And while humans have always struggled with anxiety, it does seem to be amplified in modern life for all sorts of reasons. And anxiety does seem to be the defining struggle of our age. Last week, I mentioned some recent polling among teenagers and young adults that's revealed that they certainly feel like it is that teenagers and young adults far and away feel like anxiety is the biggest problem that they face. Think about that. Far and away, the biggest problem that they face. But rather than litigating anxiety in general, because I'm really not qualified to do that, I can fake being a therapist for about four seconds, but then you're going to find out I'm not. What we're doing in this series is more specifically exploring the relationship between anxiety and faith. Because there are all sorts of things for you to legitimately be anxious about in a fallen world. Like, I get it. There are so many things that you can legitimately be anxious about. But your faith, it's not one of them. Okay? And so if your faith is making you anxious, and for a lot of us it is, because whatever, you're you're anxious that you don't have enough faith, or you're not praying enough, you're not praying the right way, you're not reading the Bible enough, you're not sharing your faith enough, you're not fighting for justice enough, whatever the case may be. When your faith is making you anxious then that means you're walking around with some burdens that Jesus has not asked you to carry. Because, again, faith does not make us anxious. So all I'm doing in this series is I'm talking to you about some burdens that you probably think you're supposed to carry that Jesus has not actually asked you to carry. I'm talking to you about some things that you probably think that you have to do, that you probably think that you have to be, that you don't actually have to do, and that you don't actually have to be. And so, last week we talked about how you don't have to be certain. Faith is not this binary decision between certainty and complete unbelief. The 11 apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus, they weren't certain. Jesus wasn't worried about it. He used them to build the church upon them, right? And this week we're going to talk about why you do not have to find God's will for your life. I understand that you're very skeptical. Please hear me out. We'll start out with this. I'm going to need a volunteer. I need a volunteer who's going to get a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity this morning to discover God's will for their lives. So somebody willing to come up to the stage, you thought you were just coming to church today, but you're going to get to discover God's will for your life. So I need somebody who's going to come up here and wants to, come on, Doug. Doug, you're looking like you want to jump. Come on, y'all invite Doug. Give him a hand. Here you go. Got a microphone for you. Looks like you got peer pressured a bit. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to ask you three questions. They're, they're very simple questions, but they're very important. It's very important you answer them honestly. I'm going to put them into a super complicated equation in my brain, and then I'm going to tell you guys what I feel like, okay? So here's question number one. What is your middle name? Neil. 
Why is Doug muted? Let's try that again. Neil. Neil. Interesting middle name. Mom give you that name? I think so. I think so. That's how it usually works. Uh, second question, okay. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Think about it. Think about it. Yes. Yes, okay. Last question, most important question. Who is your favorite pastor? Oh, man, that is a tough one. Let me think. Lauren. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Lauren. Lauren? Yeah, yeah she's okay. Okay. So here's the deal. This is God's will for your life, but you don't get to discover it until the very end of the sermon, okay? So you have to take this back to your seat, Doug. I'll take this. And if you open that prematurely, it will burst into flames, and you will too. Okay? Y'all give Doug a hand. Thank you, Doug. I know what you're thinking. You're skeptical. You're like, Austin, there's, there's no possible way you just call Doug up here and tell him God's will for his life. Because why would God tell me God's will for Doug's life instead of just... Tell him Doug, you know, why not cut out the middleman and just tell Doug? And if, if that's what you're thinking, I get it. It's a very fair question. But it's a question that is premised on a very questionable assumption. Namely, if you're wondering why God would tell me God's will for Doug's life instead of just telling Doug or instead of just telling you, then you're assuming that God hasn't already told you God's will for your life. And I think when it comes to God's will, that tends to be our default assumption, right? We assume that God has not told us his will which is why we need to seek it out and find it. But what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible is actually very, 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 very clear that God has already told each and every one of you what his will for your life is. And so what we're going to do first is a quick survey of all the places in the Bible that talk about the will of God. Okay, there are seven of them we're going to look at to start off. It's all kind of run through the New Testament here. We'll start at Mark 3, verse 35. This is Jesus talking. He says, For whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. John 7, 16 through 17 is Jesus again. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, God's will, then he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. John 9, verse 31. But if anyone is God-fearing and does God's will, then God hears him. Ephesians 6, 5 through 6, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Hebrews 10, 35 through 36, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will. Last one we'll look at, 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away and also all of its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, if you pay attention, you probably notice that every single time God's will was mentioned in one of these verses, it was attached to an action verb. But interestingly enough, this action verb was not seek or find. Did you notice that? 
In other words, all of these verses instruct us about God's will, and yet in all of these verses that instruct us about God's will, we are never instructed to try to seek or find God's will. Isn't that a little bit interesting? I think it's interesting. I mean, you would think that if like finding God's will was the most important thing in the world, it was your mission in life, you would think that maybe somewhere in the Bible, I don't know, God might tell you to do it. Seems like a good idea. But it's not in there. God never really tells us to try to seek or find his will in the Bible. So every single time God's will was mentioned, it was attached to an action verb. But rather than being told to try to seek or find God's will, all of those verses told us to do what? What was the action verb? Do. Do God's will again and again and again and again. So rather than telling us that we need to try to seek or find God's will, the Bible tends to tell us to do God's will, which brings us to a very important point. Namely, we tend to assume that we don't know God's will, so we need to look for it. But the Bible tends to assume that we do know God's will, so we need to stop looking for it and just start doing it. The Bible tends to assume that you do know God's will, so you need to stop looking for it and you just need to do it. And this is very clear biblically, it really is, but I, I understand that it can be a little bit frustrating to hear, can it? Because even though the Bible does say that, you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, Bible, but be that as it may, I, I don't know God's will for my life in all these different ways. I don't know God's will. I, I don't know who or if I'm supposed to marry. I don't know what I'm supposed to be when I grow up. I don't know what job I'm supposed to have. I don't know if I should make this transition, move to this place, take that job. And that is fair enough. God knows I have spent a lot of my life agonizing over decisions. You know, standing before that fork in the road, just begging God to tell you, God, is this like, am I supposed to go right? Am I supposed to go left? Am I supposed to go up the middle? Like, what am I supposed to do, God? Um, and so now that we've established that the Bible tends to tell us to do God's will instead of seek or find God's will, what we're going to do next is uh, a look at all of the places in the Bible where we are explicitly told what God's will for our lives is. Did you know the Bible explicitly tells you what God's will for your life is? It's great. There are four different places we'll look at. First one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 4. For this is the will of God. Are you all listening? Here it is. That you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Next verse, 1 Thessalonians 5. This is Paul again, same letter, 16 through 18. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And find this is Micah 6, verse 8. This is a classic, classic verse. God has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord your God. If you're paying attention, then you probably notice that in all of these explicit biblical explanations of God's will for your life, something very, very important was missing. Did you notice what it was? Namely, in all of these explicit biblical explanations of God's will for your life, there is no mention of God having, much less you seeking, some singular, specific perfect plan or will for your life. It's not in there. 
And I know this might be a bit startling for some of us because our whole lives we have been told that God has this singular, specific, perfect plan for our life and our mission in life is to find God's singular, specific, perfect plan. But I'm, I'm going to double down here, okay? I'm going to push more chips in. Scripture does not teach us that God has a singular, specific, perfect will for your life that he expects you, that he challenges you to find. It's just not in the Bible. And that's because instead of thinking specifically about God's will for our lives, the Bible tends to think much more generally about God's will for our lives. What does that mean? Well, for example, what is God's will for your life according to all these verses we just read that claim to tell you God's will for your life? What is it? Well, it's, it's that you'd, you'd be sanctified and holy instead of sleeping around with people you're not married to. That's God's will for your life. It's that you rejoice always and pray without ceasing. It's that you would do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord your God. In other words, the will of God, according to the Bible, is not some complicated, secret, algebraic, divine equation you know, that God is challenging you to solve. This is what a lot of us think God's will is like, but y'all, this is not the picture of God's will that the Bible paints. Now, rather than this, God's will, according to the Bible, is more like this beautiful tropical ocean, man, that God's inviting you to jump in and to just state the obvious. If you're standing before that, is there anything to find? Are there any questions to ask? Is there anything to sort through? No, what do you do when you stand in front of that? You just jump in. That's all, There's nothing to find. It's already been revealed. Just jump in. It's right there in front of you. The best book I've come across on this topic is called Decision Making and the Will of God, a very terrible cover, um, but it's an old book. Give it some grace. It's an old book. Decision-Making in the Will of God by a guy named Gary Friesen. And in it, uh, it's a simple book, but he spends 500 pages examining every single place where Scripture talks about the will of God. And he comes to the painfully indisputable conclusion that the will of God, according to the Bible, is not some sort of singular, perfect blueprint that God has for every single human life, but rather God's will, according to the Bible, is more of this general moral will that God has for everybody. Okay, God's will in the Bible, it's not this perfect blueprint that God challenges every person to find for their life, but it's this general moral will that God has for everybody. And he does a great job examining how um, this well-meaning but sloppily sentimental biblical exegesis, you know what I'm talking about? It leads us to reading this idea of God having a perfect blueprint for every life that he's challenging you to find into the Bible, even though it's just not there. In particular, we modern people, we really need to feel like we're special and unique, you know, in ways ancient people did it. And so we are very guilty of reading this into the Bible where it's just not there. We're going to walk through three places in the Bible that's often used to prove God has a perfect plan for your life or whatever that just don't prove that, right? And then you can read the book if you want the rest of the examples. Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 6. You know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. It's a wonderful text, isn't it? Oh, it's a beautiful text. But y'all, it is not a text that tells you that God has some singular specific blueprint for your life that he's challenging you to find. It's just not there. If anything, it kind of says the opposite, right? Trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding and God will make your way straight. God will sort it out. God will make sure you have a flourishing, beautiful, holy life. doesn't tell you that God has a perfect plan for your life. Next one, this is very infamous. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, you've heard this one. 
For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and you will come and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And again, what a wonderful text. It's so good. But it's not telling you that God has a perfect plan for your life that he expects and challenges you to find. What's the text telling you? It's God promising the people of Israel in exile in Babylon, not modern people need to be told they're special, that he has good plans for them, that he's not going to give up on them, and he expects them to seek him wholeheartedly. That's what the text says. Last one, Romans 12, 1 through 2. This is Paul. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect or holy is the Greek word there. And you get the drill at this point. It's another wonderful verse. But it's not a verse telling you that God has a perfect blueprint for your life. Rather, it's Paul saying, hey, listen, if you will submit to having your mind transformed, then you will live a life that proves what the will of God is. And what is the will of God? Whatever is good and acceptable and holy. That's the will of God. And so I know this might be a bit of a recalibration for some of us. I can see it in your eyes. But do you see how liberating this is? You see how liberating this is? Because you know what it means, right? It means you can stop obsessively worrying about trying to find and worrying that you didn't find God's perfect plan for your life. Because, y'all, if God has a perfect plan for your life and you, you following that and, and, you know, it entails you, like, discerning the secret will of God in every decision and listening to your heart and was that God or was that the tacos talking? It's always hard to tell between God and the tacos, at least for me. Right? If you really think that way about God's will and seeking it, it's going to make you a hot mess. Because deep down, you know that there's no possible way that you could perfectly discern God's perfect will for your life. And that's always the problem with God's perfect will. It would require a perfect person with perfect discernment to perfectly find it. And you are not capable of that. And so how liberating is it to understand that God's will, it's not something that you find or you don't find. But rather, God's will is something that you either obey or you disobey. You follow God's will, it's not something you have to find or not find. It's already been revealed. It is something that you either obey or you disobey. Because what is God's will according to Micah, right? The prophet Micah, Micah 6, 8. God's told you what is good. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord your God. And so you can obey or disobey that, but you do not need to find it. Because it has already been revealed to you. Think of it this way. Quick example. And I'm sure, I'm sure nobody's ever done this before. But let's say... You're dating someone. I know this is a stretch for some of you. Um, I'm just kidding. Let's say you're dating someone. And things are getting serious, very serious. And, you know, as lovers are sometimes want to do, you're, perhaps you've crossed some boundaries physically that are best not crossed before you're married. Let's just say, hypothetically, it's happened, you know. And so you're praying and you're asking God. And you're like, God, please reveal to me, is, is she the one? Any of you ever prayed that prayer? Is he the one? Is she the one? Please, God, tell me your will. And God's like, stop sleeping with her. <laughs> you're like, oh, no, God, I wasn't asking about that part. Um, <laughs> if you could just circle back to my question. Dear Abba Father, wonderful counselor, please tell me. 
she the one? And so again, the good news is that God's will can be obeyed or disobeyed, but it doesn't need to be found because it's already been revealed. Okay? That's what the Bible tends to say about God's will. It is very liberating. But what might initially feel like the bad news is this seems to leave a lot of our lives seemingly unexplained, right? I mean, you've got this big general moral will. That's great. But what about all the details? How do we fill those in? And so let's circle back to this example of marriage, right? Like, like if God has a general instead of a specific will for our lives, then how are we supposed to know who we're supposed to marry or if we're supposed to marry, so on and so forth. Philip Carey is a theologian. I mentioned him last week. He's written very thoughtfully about all this. And he says that when you're trying to discern like who you should marry or if you should marry, you should stop asking yourself questions like, is he or she the one? Which is a very immature question to ask. And you should instead ask yourself these four questions. Here's what he said. Is this a good and godly person, number one? Number two, is this person good for me? There are good people who are not good for you. Number three, am I good for this person? Number four, can we be good parents together? These are the sort of questions you should ask if you're wondering if you should marry somebody. Now listen, I know this is not as romantic as some of you would like. As you can tell, I am a lot of fun to be married to. <laughs> but I do think that this is, you laughed a little too hard at that. I'm a lot of fun, okay? I, I'm great. Um, I do think this is what mature, biblical, grown-up decision-making looks like. And not, God, please whisper into my heart, is, she, is he or she the one, right? How's that worked out for you? Here's how Carrie says it. He says, listen, there is no the one for you to marry. Rather, there are many good people with whom you can make a good marriage. And a good marriage with a good person is good enough. Indeed, it is more than good enough. It is one of the greatest blessings on earth. Young people need to know that a good marriage comes of two good people being faithful and good to one another and being good parents together. It's not the result of finding the one person that you're supposed to marry, an imaginary person, the very idea of which gets them anxious about all the wrong things. And it does. All that to say, listen, God does not have a plan for your life like a singular, perfect blueprint. And if you get it right, then it's all good. And if you don't, then everything's just awful and you've missed God's will for your life. And that's really good news. God has plans for your life, man, not a plan. God has plans for your life. And that is really good news. I promise it is. Because listen, if God did have a singular, specific, perfect blueprint for your life, then, you know, you probably blew it when you were like three years old. And you have any three-year-olds in the house? I got it too. I promise you, God's will is gone, man. It was perfect will, gone a long time ago for her. Before you're out of diapers, God's perfect will is gone. Right? And so instead of anxiously obsessing all the time about God's, God's perfect will for your life, God invites you to live a life that honors Him and brings you joy and is a blessing to others. That's what God wants you to do. And that could probably be so many different things for you, just like it could have been so many different things for me. I mean, y'all. I didn't have to marry my wife. I didn't have to marry Allison. She wasn't the one and the only one for me. <clears throat> she wanted you to know that she feels the same way. She mentioned that after listening in first service. <laughs> I didn't have to marry Allison. No, I wanted to marry Allison because I wanted her to be the one that I spent the rest of my life with. That's why I married Allison. I didn't have to be a pastor. It's not like I was the only thing and everything else was a failure and God would be so disappointed in me. No, there are plenty of things that I could have been clearly 
could have been a professional basketball player, right? Why are you all you're laughing again? A lot of things I could have, and we didn't have to have three kids. You know, when we were trying to decide whether or not we were going to have a third kid, <clears throat> I didn't get on my knees and go, oh, dear God, wonderful counselor, please tell us your will. We're going to, Alice and I, we're going to get off birth control, roll the old dice, and if we get pregnant, then we will take it as a sign that it was your will that we have three kids. That's not what we did. You know what we did? You know what we do in the Fisher household? This is how we discern whether or not God wanted us to have a third kid. My wife said, I want a third kid. And I said, I don't. So we had a third kid. That's <laughs> how we make decisions biblically in my household. <clears throat> I talk to people all the time. I know people that have got like 14 kids. And they're like, yeah, I guess God just wanted us to have another. And I'm like, oh. there's a chance God wants you to learn how birth control works. I'm not, I'm just saying. It's a fair question. Reasonable people can ask. I like to end by getting very practical. When you're trying to make good and wise decisions, I think Scripture suggests that instead of anxiously begging God to whisper His will into your heart, the Bible instead teaches us to look for the overlap of three things. Desire, gifting, and blessing. And here's what I mean. When you're making big decisions, okay, you don't have to like, you don't have to ask God for His will about everything, man. Like, Lord, queso or guacamole. Just get them both, for the love of God. Just get them both. Get them both. Big decisions, though. I think you ought to ask yourself these three questions. These have been very helpful for me over the years. Number one, what do I want to do? Okay. What do I want to, what does God put in my heart? What do I desire to do? What gives me life? What do I want to do? Number two, what am I good at? What has God gifted me to do? If you want to be an accountant, but you can't count, hmm. I know a lot of people who think God's called them to be singers, but listen, man, if you, if you can't sing, I don't think God's called. God's like, have you heard yourself? Are you really praying about this? There's no prayer needed. Just sing and listen. Not my will for you. Not a singer. Number three, does it bless others? In any place where those three things overlap, think in terms of a Venn diagram if you're a visual person. Okay, any place where those three things, desire, gifting, and blessing overlap, that is within the bounds of God's will for you. That is God's will for you. You don't have to anxiously pray about it and beg God to tell you. Anything that falls within the bounds of that is God's will for you. And so that will probably mean that you have so many good options before you in your life. So instead of becoming a neurotic mess, you just need to choose. We're going to listen to a short little video from my friend Abigail. She does a great job talking about how liberating it is to just do what you know God has told you to do instead of freak out about the things that you feel like God hasn't told you. We'll check it out real quick. When thinking about God's will for my life, I think about the first 18, 19 years that I had a lot of stress and anxiety, not knowing what's next, not knowing where to find peace and, and what to do. But now that I know Jesus, I have learned that I don't have to go searching for God's will. I have a God that knows me and loves me so well that he knows exactly what next year, what tomorrow, what five years from now is going to look like. And so what I get to do is wake up every day and do the things that I know to be true. I get to love people well, reflect Jesus, serve people and share the gospel with people. And so I get to have peace and comfort knowing that I can do that daily to live out a bigger picture that God has for me. All right, Doug, it's time to come back up here and discover God's will for your life. Come on up here, man. Y'all give Doug a hand. He's been waiting anxiously. This is the moment. I can tell you're not inflamed, so I know you didn't open it. <laughs> Doug, tell the people what God's will for your life is. Open 
Yeah, you're good now, I think. Yeah, you're good. Love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. So anybody recognize this quote? This is from St. Augustine. You can sit down, Doug. Thanks, buddy. Y'all give me a hand. This is from St. Augustine. Love God and do as you please. I love this quote. St. Augustine was a very wise Christian who lived a couple thousand years ago. Because in it, Augustine says so succinctly what I think the Bible says so clearly about God's will for your life. Namely, God has already told you what his will for your life is. And so stop sitting around anxiously begging God to tell you something that God has already told you. Love God and then do as you please. That is God's will for your life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are your creatures who are here solely because you love us and you delight in us and you're faithful to us. We come before you today, and God, I know that a lot of us have carried around a lot of anxiety about seeking your will and finding your will, and we're worried that we've missed your will. And I hope that what we heard this morning was a very liberating word, that it's not that you like don't care about our lives, but it's that you love us so much that you give us so many good options, and you don't want us like wondering what we're supposed to do. You're not some sort of petty psychological tyrant who enjoys torturing our consciences and making us wonder what you want. No, you, God, you could not have made it plainer. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and do as you please. That is your will for us. And so I pray that we would feel that burden taken off and that it would free us up to live lives that are more joyful, more hopeful, more meaningful, because we know that you have already told us everything that we need to know. Of course you would. You're a good father. And so we rejoice in that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.